Welcome to Local Bites, the podcast of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. In this show, we'll be featuring critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement for localization. Welcome to the first episode of the Local Bites podcast. I'm your host, Brian Emerson. Today, we are going to discuss how free trade treaties threaten local economies globally and why localists must join the global movement against the TPP and TAFTA. We're speaking today with the founder and director of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, Helena Norberg-Hodge. A pioneer of the new economy movement, Helena has been promoting localization for more than 30 years. She is the producer and co-director of The Economics of Happiness and is author of Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh, among many other publications. In 1986, she received the Right Livelihood Award for her groundbreaking work in Ladakh, India. More recently, she was awarded the Goey Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Helena, thank you for joining us for the first episode of Local Bites. Very happy to be here. So ever since the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, was proposed more than 20 years ago, you've warned about the negative implications of free trade treaties and other efforts to deregulate global trade and finance. Most recently, you produced a film, The Economics of Happiness, that enumerates some of the most inconvenient truths about globalization, as you've called them in the film. There are now two far-reaching global trade treaties being negotiated, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, that some have called NAFTA on steroids, and the Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement, or TAFTA. I'd like to ask you about these specific trade agreements in a moment. But before I do, I wonder if you could tell us about your background, especially about your work in Ladakh. Perhaps you could start by saying a little about what you've learned living and working there over the years. How did your experience in Ladakh lead you to become such a strong critic of globalization and a proponent of localization? Well, my eyes were first open to these issues when I uh, arrived in a place called Ladakh or Little Tibet, which is actually the westernmost part of Tibet, belongs politically to India. And it was a region that had been closed off from the modern world from the 40s onwards. It was a sensitive border area. And it was suddenly thrown open to the outside, essentially to the outside global economy. And I witnessed speaking the language fluently and and going back every year, often for half of every year, I witnessed how within a decade unemployment was created, pollution that had never existed before of air, of water, of soil, toxic pollution that there had not been before, and uh, unemployment which, you know, had never, ever existed So I started trying to understand how could it be that products from the other side of the Himalayas coming in there were selling for half the price of local products. How was it possible that these outside businesses could be destroying local businesses and how this whole process created such major social and environmental upheaval? And this led me to understand that fundamentally in the economy, um, the complete devotion to the idea that essentially destroying production for local needs is how you generate growth. There's a principle of comparative advantage that's been used since the 1700s, which is 
the notion that it's in your country's or region's interest to stop producing a range of things for yourselves and for your region and to specialize for export. I see that as a, a fundamental structural problem with the modern economy that we really need to re-examine. Of course, in many parts of the world, specializing a bit so you can export and you can import things that you can't produce can be a rather good idea. And, you know, forever there's been trade, you know, in almost every part of the world there's been trade and even quite long distance trade traditionally. But this concept now has been used to essentially drive and support the creation of giant multinational banks and corporations that, as we know, have come to dominate our world. And I, having had my eyes open to this and starting to question what I saw in Ladakh, um, I had also started some projects there with my husband and set up an organization that was trying to show an alternative that would involve a better balance between local and global, and that would make use of renewable energy instead of fossil fuels. Um, we were invited to work in Bhutan, and we had experiences there over five years, and we saw how exactly the same process was happening, and that this creation of unemployment, where there had never been unemployment, was one of the major reasons for local ethnic friction and violence that the toxic pollution that was a consequence of this also led immediately to health problems and to the creation of real poverty, which was not part of these traditional economies. When I then went back to my native country of Sweden in the 70s, we were engaged in a debate about the EU, and there we were seeing that essentially at the European level, the creation of an economic union was actually being driven by the needs of big banks and corporations that wanted open borders and standardization for them, for their business, not for the people. And for them, different languages, different currencies, different ways of measuring was inefficient. So in the name of efficiency, there were these attempts to foist treaties on diverse um, democracies and all of this has led really led me already from the 70s to try to raise awareness about trade treaties and and about how corporate power was escalating and and we were building a sort of juggernaut of interlinked corporations and banks that were starting to dictate to government. Um, and I see this as primarily a structural problem emanating from a blind devotion to, to certain ideas in their training in economics that today really have to be questioned. It's gone way, way out of balance and out of control. So this coming January marks the 20-year anniversary of NAFTA, which along with the WTO has deregulated international trade and investment, ostensibly for the purpose of spurring economic growth creating jobs and alleviating poverty. Now the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, and the Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement, or TAFTA, are currently being negotiated with these same goals in mind. How have free trade treaties impacted communities around the world since NAFTA and the WTO? And why are these latest treaties, the TPP and TAFTA, 
producing such a hornet's nest of protest in so many countries. Free trade has been sold to us as being necessary for expanding economic freedom and growth. Does it in fact lead to job creation and greater prosperity? What are people so concerned about? We've heard uh, presidents and prime ministers saying, oh, can't do anything to try to regulate the global economy because if we try to regulate our banks, they'll go elsewhere. Now, that's precisely what the free trade treaties are about, the freedom, the movement of banks and corporations to go and scour the world for the lowest standards, the lowest prices of of minerals and resources, the lowest environmental protection standards, the lowest price in labor. And when we keep giving them more freedom through these free trade treaties, we're also making it impossible for local businesses to compete. How can you possibly compete in America if you are using labor in the same economic environment where the costs also represent the price of labor? You're competing with a company that is going to be producing, obviously, where labor is cheapest. You know, in some cases, you're talking about producing where people can survive on $10 a day or even less, and then you're selling where people are earning $100 a day. So as a multinational corporation, you have a huge advantage over, over local players. There is no doubt that there are a lot of politicians that, at least until recently, have really believed that this avenue of free trade treaties was necessary to create growth in their own national and local economies. Um, and it is partly due to the fact that the way that growth is calculated, the way GDP is calculated, it doesn't actually look at what is going on at, to, at society, what's happening to people and the environment. So we have this incredibly faulty measure of growth, and then we have a lot of blind beliefs in free trade with the sort of implicit idea that the only alternative is to continue in that direction or communism, that that's sort of the two paths. You know, either we have big, heavy bureaucracy and government running business or we continue down this path of free trade. And now, thank goodness, you know, more people are waking up to realize that, no, you keep promising that these economic policies are creating jobs. Well, what's actually happening is that young people in particular, and now we're talking globally, young people are finding that it is more and more difficult to get a job, that if you do get a job, it is far more pressured and intense. I mean, even in China now, those who are lucky enough to get a job are working 80 hours a week, are stressed, depressed, you know, suicide is going up, both among those who do get jobs and those who don't get jobs, which, of course, is an increasing number of people now around the world. Why doesn't this path create jobs? Because it is absolutely structurally linked to favoring ever larger concentrations of banks and corporations that use more and more technology, more and more energy, both for transport and for all other forms of technology that are replacing people. It's become a jobless growth economy. 
and one that generates profit for a smaller, smaller margin of people. Okay, and what about inequality? Could you say anything about that? Generating profit for a smaller, smaller margin of people means that you find in every single country, I know of no exception, that the gap between rich and poor is widening astronomically. So it is uh, vital for all everything we care about, the health of our children, their physical health, their mental health, secure jobs, stable economies. It is absolutely vital that we look at these trade treaties. Some critics have characterized the TPP and TAFTA as an unprecedented assault on democracy. The treaties give sweeping rights to corporations in such areas as patents, GMO labeling and food safety standards, environmental laws, government procurement, health care, energy, internet freedom, and banking and finance regulation. Apparently, both treaties will likely contain so-called investor rights provisions that would give corporations the ability to sue against social and environmental regulations that limit their expected future profits. Now, that does sound pretty serious. Are these legitimate concerns? Absolutely. I mean, it's already because of trade treaties and because of this idea that foreign investment is vital and and of central importance, we already have situations where companies are suing regions and countries for a loss of profit. Now, um, once we wake up to the fact that already the trade treaties that have been negotiated have led to situations where giant multinationals are suing governments, for protecting the environment. I mean, recently, a Swedish nuclear power company called Vattenfall in Swedish, which means waterfall, a nice name, has sued the Germans for wanting to phase out nuclear power after Fukushima for $3.7 billion. There's an example in Ontario, Canada, apparently, where the government was promoting renewable energy, creating more jobs, and the cause they sought to protect and to encourage local employment. And they're being sued by Japanese and EU companies for uh, inhibiting their profits. Anything that would uh, inhibit profits, whether it's environmental or social protection, will be threatened under these trade treaties. And when I say will be threatened, we're talking about clear evidence of some hundreds of cases already under NAFTA and the previous GATT ratification and the EU. We're now talking about treaties that are massively escalating and increasing corporate rule, essentially, rule by foreign investors, foreign banks and corporations. You have argued that localists everywhere need to join the global movement against free trade treaties. In other words, that it's not enough to support local food and small businesses through buy local initiatives, etc. Why? And and why and how do these treaties affect pro-local initiatives? Well, part of these treaties is precisely to give more rights to foreign investors and foreign corporations. So structurally, That means that you cannot favor your own people, your own region, your own jobs. And 
the strategies of corporate think tanks have been to make any group of people, NGOs or regions of governments that try to protect their own people look xenophobic, racist, um, and prejudiced. And this is why it is so important that we understand this from a global point of view, that we understand that we need to link hands globally for a movement that really understands that this is in the interest of the people of China and India as well as the people of America, that we all protect our own local environments, our own local jobs, and that when we do that, we're creating a structure that allows for a decentralization and a distribution of wealth that is inherently more just, more egalitarian, more democratic. But um, at the moment, we have already many examples. I mean, in Europe already, because of the EU, countries have been told they have to tender across Europe. So, you know, if you want to build a hospital in England, you're supposed to tender so that Portuguese labor wants to come and build your hospital. Now, this is being uh, increased now. The stranglehold that they're trying to bring in with these treaties will make this even worse because many of the, many of these uh, trade deregulations that have been going on, remember, we're deregulating global businesses and banks. Um, some of it hasn't been implemented yet, but now they're trying with new treaties to make these uh, regulations strangle uh, the local even more. So we have, we really have a situation where as part and parcel of global free trade, which is deregulating global economic activity, we have simultaneously an overregulation and a constriction of local trade, local finance, local business. And part of that is that you have to tender outside, you know, for procurements of all kinds. Um, you are obliged to open up to foreign investors, to foreign labor. And uh, what you'll see is that there's a general pattern where so many localists who've actually got on with building up local food economies, creating buy local campaigns, um, local financing, all these things that in our organization we've been promoting for about 30 years, there's a tendency for those locals not to pay attention to the either the national or the global political scene. And, and I'm convinced that once we do get those localists to really see um, what a powerful systemic shift we can generate if we create enough of a voice and enough of a movement to say no to that deregulation. It's one of the best ways to strengthen the local. So it's uh, it's really vitally important that we get that message out and that we look at essentially global to local campaigns. I, I do see a, a change in thinking, you know, both from those people who were only focused on the anti-global but weren't localists, um, and I also see more of the localists uh, really waking up to the to the need to oppose the globalization of the economy. And uh, I just like to add to that here a very important issue 
is for us to distinguish between an economic trajectory of globalization versus what I prefer to call an internationalization of exchange of information, collaboration between the NGO movements and even between governments. We urgently need international collaboration and support, particularly to contend with and to withstand the pressures of this globalized economic juggernaut. At the same time, as we're having deregulation at the global level, we're also getting an overregulation at the local level. To follow up on that, trade watchdog groups have warned the TPP and TAFTA could prevent governments from instituting procurement policies designed to support local farmers and small businesses and keep taxpayer dollars circulating in their local communities. In other words, the treaty could limit government's ability to pass laws designed to revitalize their local economy. Is this true? Absolutely, absolutely. This is, uh, you know, the uh, the central part of these treaties is to have governments sign on to a commitment to support the global trade and global multinationals, and anything they do to favor the local goes directly against that, and that becomes part of the treaty. The, you are literally not allowed. To, it's called protectionism, basically. It's seen as a dirty word, and and that's at the you know very very deep in these economic structures is the idea that that's nasty and dirty, and this somehow it's implied that protectionism is you know giant rich countries favoring themselves to the disadvantage of the poor. This has never been true. I mean, we're talking here about protecting themselves and their own people against the abuse of giant corporations, and that becomes illegal under these treaties, progressively illegal. Interesting. If if the current global free trade regime is inimical to localization, do you think we need an alternative international policy framework to replace it, or is policy change at the local level sufficient? I think uh, we will be able to bring about uh, a new trade regime, which will be essentially exactly the opposite. It will be what I call, probably it will start with what I call a breakaway strategy, that those nations where the movements are strong enough and have a mandate from their people to move in the opposite direction of allowing a flourishing of diversified, healthier economic activity and with it, healthier ecosystems and healthier people um, they will uh, break away in a breakaway strategy and together say no to the banking and corporate juggernaut. Say, sorry, we are now starting progressively to move uh, towards reducing our dependence on global corporations and limiting their rights. And from my point of view, we need to be moving towards a place where every bank and business is localized in the sense that they need to belong to a country where rules have been determined for business, and they may be different from country to country. There may be certain priorities in some countries and others in others, but democratically determined rules will shape the business but not run it. So it's not we don't have the alternative of either government running business and huge top-heavy bureaucracy or what we have now. We can have a framework where society determines rules. They would want rules that 
that would ensure greater and fairer distribution, that would give labor basic standards and rights, all of which now is being removed out of this uh, because of these trade treaties. So, um, yes, I think um, national and international policy change is necessary. And we can start insisting on protectionist policies right away for many smaller countries and so on. A sort of breakaway strategy and collaborating internationally is going to be the way they'll have enough force and power to withstand the pressure of the interlinked banks and corporations. And to come back to this localized, why I see localization as a much broader systemic path is, as I say, because I think we need to understand that we have in our entire history, it has been the case that culture has shaped economic activity until the modern era. In the modern era, this is being reversed and economic priorities are shaping culture. And we're now talking about giant global corporations imposing a global consumer culture. We need to reverse that. The economic has to be under an umbrella of culturally determined, democratically determined choices. And of course, they clearly today need to be ecologically informed. So we're talking about ecological structures and cultural priorities shaping business rather than the other way around. And that is what what I call localized and localization. Okay. What are some examples of pro-local policies that you would advocate for from the local to the global levels of government? In terms of pro-local policies, there are also city governments that have started taking steps from the local going up progressively. You see these policy changes happening and um, in San Francisco, the mayor, you know, decided to procure food locally for all government institutions. And there have been, in many places, initiatives to take these steps. But as I said before, it is very important that we also insist on policy change at the national level and that we then point out to our national leaders that when they come back to to us often say, oh, no, no, we can't do that. They'll go elsewhere. You know, the banks will go elsewhere. The corporations will go elsewhere. That we point out that actually they can start pushing for trade treaties where it is about governments collaborating to support each other in creating healthier economies. But many people have become quite cynical about making change to the political system given the capture of governments by corporate interests. Where should activists focus their efforts? The sad thing is often when people think of changing politics, they think immediately, I've got to go and lobby the existing representatives, and it ends up being a very small movement, and it does not focus on building up a movement that could burst forth and really make a difference. If we're able to gain enough momentum we can halt the continued erosion of democracy, of all our environmental concerns, of the social breakdown. And that, you know, I would say that the minute that we get enough of a movement to wake up to this central issue, that's when we'll be starting to really turn things around towards a healthier environment, a real 
movement towards democratic uh, rights and democratic control of what's happening. Helena Norberg-Hodge, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I love doing it. You've been listening to Local Bites, a podcast series from the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Join us next time for another episode of Local Bites. Thank you.